Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are completing our recap of The Way Station by Stephen King. That means it's our second episode. If you've just stumbled upon this, uh, we've got one before it that covers the first chapter of this novella. We'll be doing the second two chapters today. But first, a reminder, we are this very month holding our vote to determine what our next Patreon bonus series is going to be after we finish H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. If you join us today at patreon.com slash Media, you will get access to that current series. And if you join us at the second tier or higher, you will be able to vote for what is next and also for what's next here on the on the main show, which is always really f- a fun part of doing this. Yeah, it really is. If you've uh, listened to the last episode, you know that there are some amazing titles on the ballot from writers that both you and I are anxious to cover, Glenn. So I hope you'll take a moment to check us out on Patreon. Patreon's the best way to get us to cover the stories that you want to listen to. Yeah, I'm behind the scenes. Uh, I think we're we're in the process of inventing a kind of drinking game here to see what the <laughs> what the results are. And I'm so grateful that our listeners are making this hard choice for us because I want to cover every single one of them. And if I were asked to pick just one, which is indeed what we are asking our Patreon supporters, wow, I would uh, I would be hard pressed to make that choice. So we're really grateful for all the participation and all the support that we get. Well, at the end of our last episode, we left off in the story with Roland thinking about his childhood in this walled city that he grew up in. And that's where we're going to pick up today, which is chapter two of The Waystation. Right. This second numbered section is entirely a flashback to Roland's childhood in that walled city, that walled city he was telling Jake about. We enter into this in the middle of what feels like a, a weird bit of falconry practice with also a bit of full metal jacket <laughs> thrown in uh, <laughs> Roland and his friend Cuthbert, which is an amazing name. They are practicing with the hawk named David and they're doing this under the guidance of their instructor or maybe drill sergeant. This is a man named Court and we have encountered Court before in some memories also back during uh, the very first chapter of the gunslinger. The idea here is that Court is going to release a a, a dove and Cuthbert needs to send the hawk after it. And the boys are talking to each other when Court suddenly releases the dove. And this leaves Cuthbert, you know, he doesn't expect this at this moment. And so this leaves Cuthbert struggling to get the hawk unleashed in time. The hawk does eventually get the dove, but Cuthbert was sloppy and he was unprepared. And so Court punches him. He also calls him maggot an awful lot. I mean, like, an awful lot. <laughs> and he forbids Cuthbert from eating dinner or breakfast. You know, he's just saying you, you can't come to the chow hall. And Court also just doesn't like the way that Cuthbert is taking his punishment. And so he hits him again. And when he sees that Cuthbert wants to hit him back, uh, I mean, he's not going to, right? But he, he wants to. Court tells him that maybe there is hope for him still. So, yeah, that's all really pleasant to read, right? This uh, adult beating beating this child here and uh, uh, treating it like it's educational. Uh, I mean, it's not quite as bad as Snape, I guess, but uh, but almost. But we do learn a few things about the world of Roland's childhood here. We've encountered Roland speaking the high speech before. We also learn now that there is, you know, naturally, I guess we, we might have guessed this, but there is a low speech also. 
It seems that high speech is what they learn at home, but they're actually not allowed to use it outside of their homes until they've passed through their training or you know, something like that. Anyway, it's a privilege that they have to earn, at least. And so the boys actually speak the low speech to each other. But then, when he's berating Cuthbert, Court demands that he answer him in the high speech. So this is all a little bit strange, actually kind of difficult for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, it is a little strange. But I will say that reading this section just reminds me of all the things that I enjoyed so much about the whole Dark Tower series. Like, not the abuse of children, but things like right. the high speech, uh, forgetting the face of your father, this strange fantasy upbringing that is in no way exactly like an Arthurian story cycle with Freud thrown in, which you know <laughs> hey, we'll see a little bit more of in a while. And that's also what T.H. White did in his book, The Once and Future King, which is a perennial favorite of mine. And a lot of this childhood or teenage years of Roland's story gets picked up in Wizard and Glass, which is the fourth book in the series. And I have to say, after reading this, if I weren't already knee deep in reading two other speculative fiction series right now, I would jump back into this one in an instant. Adding anything more to your your pile, Brandon, that, that's, that's the way to madness for sure. <laughs> it is right now, but... I do want to say I would definitely hate going through training with Court, whose mode of training is just like toughness and cruelty under the guise of education, as you said, Glenn. But Court, as a character here, really speaks to the overall tradition and, and culture that Roland grew up in. And I really like how King gives us a very full sense of this culture in just this brief chapter nestled within the way station. I, I think it's pretty amazing. This flashback, and, and of course, we're you know only just getting into it at, at this point, but this flashback really, I mean, it almost doubles the the world, right? That up to this point, we have been in a weird Western, and maybe we still are, but we're not just in some kind of weird, surreal desert with like, you know, demons and preachers and a zombie town to fight and just endless walking here. We're actually getting a sense that there's a civilization somewhere that this desert is actually the frontier of, right? So the, the weird Western is actually getting, or the weird West part, I suppose, is actually getting some kind of context in relation to a civilization. What all that context, what all that context is, how these pieces actually fit together. That's not going to be clear at the end of the, the way station, but we're getting a hint that at least there is some kind of broader world. And it lets us start to put those pieces together and helps us understand Roland's character as well, which is all just just brilliantly done. Yeah, it does. It does a lot of heavy lifting. And, and you know, I just cannot wait for our discussion episode to look at some of these world building elements and how King has tied these to the character motivations in really interesting ways. Well, right. Let's uh, let's keep going here then. So the next scene takes place in the kitchen. And so we get to meet the cook. His name is Hacks. H-A-X. It's a great name. And he is good with the children here uh, in the sense that he treats them mostly like adults, uh, even the kids who have already begun the training. Uh, training here, by the way, is with a, a capital T that also, in addition to standing for training, almost certainly does stand for trouble. And Hacks has had plenty of experience feeding kids on the sly, right? Kids in trouble with court, just like Cuthbert is here. And so what we glean from this is that this is 
a kind of school. It's a weird Western Hogwarts, <laughs> maybe, right? So I think the Snape jokes are, are apt here. Uh, even though we've only met two students so far, I think there's a real sense kind of immediately that there are more of them here. And we also learned that Hacks uses an electric stove to cook for everyone, and that this electric stove is only one of six remaining working appliances on the estate. So this is some more of this uh, post-apocalyptic uh, sense of the setting as well. So the story here is this. Roland and Cuthbert go to Hacks so that Cuthbert can eat, and just as he's getting ready to help them out, a member of the guards comes to talk with him, and so Hack sends the boys off to get some food from one of his assistants. They do that, and then they go eat in the stairs, because, you know, they're also trying to hide, right? Cuthbert can't get caught with the food. And so this means that when Hacks and the guard go into the corner by the stairs to have a secret conversation, well, it's not actually a secret conversation. The boys can hear this whole thing. And what they hear is awful. The guard and Hacks, it turns out, are in league with the good man, who is the enemy of the gunslingers here on this estate. The good man wants Hacks to prepare some poisoned food in order to kill some kids. Uh, not here, not in this castle, not on this estate, but in a, a neighboring community. Hacks is not immediately down with this, but the guard explains that obviously these children are suffering by being under the rule of the gun rather than the rule of he who makes the lion lie down with the lamb. And Hax is persuaded by that. So now he's in. And we cut now at this point to the next scene, which is taking place a short while later. Uh, Roland has just told his father what he and Cuthbert overheard. Uh, Roland's father is clearly a big deal here. And so this means that Hax is going to be hanged as a traitor. But what's interesting about this conversation is that Roland's father is opposed to like morality or something like that. <laughs> uh, he says that telling on hacks because what hacks is planning is immoral. Doing that, taking that action, you know, from Roland's perspective here or, or Roland taking that action. I mean, that is unworthy. It's only worthy to tell on hacks if Roland has done it because he feels personally wronged by hacks and because he wants vengeance because of that wrong. Uh, this is obviously something that we'll need to take up in the discussion episode, but I'm going to blow by it here and just say that at any rate, we learn here as well that the good man is also this Martin character whom Roland mentioned to Jake at the close of our first episode. And so there is seemingly, right, some very strange intrigue, maybe political machinations going on in this castle. There's definitely some co-mingling of imagery associated, you know, between Martin and the man in black here and the good man and priestliness. And that's also something we'll take up in our discussion as well. I, I you know, we can distinguish Martin from the man in black uh, as like maybe distinct persons, but not really distinct in their function uh, in their role in, uh, I don't know, whatever broader social context they inhabit. And so, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about them as if they're roughly the same person for the sake <laughs> of our discussion. But here, you know, speaking to Roland's dad's sense of morality, I, I really got a, a little bit of a different sense than you did. I got the sense that Roland's dad was mad at Roland for not killing hacks in the guard, like right then when Roland heard the plot. Because then Roland would have had taken responsibility 
for Hax's death on himself rather than passing it off to someone else. Like Roland acted ignobly. I think one way or another, Roland's dad think Roland acted ignobly. And apparently a big part of that, uh, of what Roland is supposed to be learning in this school is how to be a kind of noble knight of the realm. So I think you're, I don't know, there's probably room for both of what we, we think is going on there with regards to Roland and his father's sense of, of morality and what Roland's training is supposed to be about. I also want to point out something about Hacks here. Hacks is someone who really comes across in the same way that Jake's nannies come across. They're caring, but they maintain a kind of professional distance. And this is a, a really strange parallel, I thought, but I don't know. That's what discussion episodes are for, I guess. <laughs> and there's one more thing I want to point out before we move on. Roland's dad also indicates that he really understands that there's some importance to having a public menace and to letting that public menace exist for as long as possible, because there's something to having a devil you know, especially when you're a governor of a sort. Yeah, Roland's dad. I, I, I'm looking forward to getting into the discussion episode and and trying to break down what's happening in this scene, and maybe we'll even just read some of that, like into the microphone together, so we can parse out this uh, this disagreement that we're having about how to interpret uh, the moral positions here, the moral philosophy of Roland's father. But one thing we can definitely say is that there is some uh, like real politic going on here in in the political philosophy of Roland's father, where he thinks that. The best way to have a group cohesion is to align that group as you know being opposed to some other group or something else. And he yeah says very darkly here that uh, even if there weren't enemies with within our own camp or enemies to fight, we would make some up. We would find people to turn them into enemies because that's the only way that we can have a kind of group cohesion uh, or our own sort of you know group or, or social identity here. And that's uh that's pretty bleak. That's a pretty dark. Pretty dark political philosophy. Yeah, it's the opposite of of Star Trek. So hundred uh, percent. There's at least that. <laughs> well, all right. So we fast forward again to the day that Hax is going to be hanged. Roland and Cuthbert are at the gallows. It's two hours before the hanging, and so they are here all alone. Uh, all alone, that is, except for the rooks and the ravens that are here. The gallows makes a pretty big impression on each of them, but it's a different impression. Cuthbert realizes that he does not want to be here. He does not want to watch Hacks hanged, and he knows that if he does, if he sees this, he will not be able to sleep. But Roland, Roland is not bothered by that. Instead, Roland feels the enormity of his own role in the hanging of Hacks, and for the first time, he he hates his own childhood, uh, by which I mean he, he hates being a child and yearns to be an adult. And Roland breaks off a piece of the gallows to take with him here. So now a crowd has gathered. Hax is brought in, standing on a cart. And before he's hanged, he's asked if he wants to make a confession. He doesn't, but he does say something. I have nothing to confess. I have not forgotten my father's face. It has been with me through all. And the crowd seems to have a, a positive reaction to this, and Roland wonders about that. It seems to him that if traitors are seen as heroes, then uh, dark times must have fallen. And now Cuthbert wants to hold Roland's hand during the moment of the hanging, and they do, and Hacks drops, and he dies. Uh, King gives us uh, a description, of course, a very you know 
body horror Stephen King description. I'm not going to do that. We're just going to move on here. But uh, what really matters, I think, at least from my perspective anyway, is that Roland and Cuthbert have different reactions to this gruesome scene. Cuthbert finds that actually he enjoyed watching Hacks killed, or at least he says that he did. But Roland, Roland did not enjoy it. But it was definitely something. It was definitely something, he says. And now, at this point, this flashback and also this numbered section, numbered section number two of the way station, comes to an end with this line. The land did not fall to the good man for another ten years, and by that time he was a gunslinger. His father was dead, he himself had become a matricide, and the world had moved on. You see why King, in turning this into a seven novel series, needs to do some... Uh, recuperative work in the character of the gunslinger <laughs> to give him a dramatic arc instead of just making him an iconic hero. R- Roland breaking off a piece of the gallows uh, parallels the moment uh, we saw earlier in this story where Roland had that instinct to take the jawbone from the skull that in- the demon inhabited. And I get the feeling that the stuff that Roland collects is meaningful or emblematic of some eventful moment. And so he has an instinct to keep them, whether or not they end up solving some sort of like plot dilemma later on or become magical artifacts or something like that. Uh, it's it's an interesting choice. And I, and I can't quite recall what King is doing with these items. I think we'll find out more about the jawbone later than about the splinter from the gallows. But I do remember there being important like mystical artifacts that Roland ends up having to want to find either within the tower or without it. I also like how King in this section makes us feel like maybe Roland isn't the most promising student or he has some latent ability that nobody's been able to draw out of him yet. But we definitely, Glenn, and you've pointed this out, get the sense that Roland is one among many in this early part of his life. But now in the present of the story that's being told of the way station, he's the lone errant knight kind of carrying on the ideals of the, of the realm that has fallen. And the way that he's treated by his father and court, you know, in the way that I've described makes me feel like if anyone had to be chosen to be the last gunslinger, like Roland wouldn't have even made the list, but <laughs> here he is. Uh, but I guess I, in terms of, you know, feeling good about him as a character, at least he doesn't get pleasure from the hanging. Right. At least there's that, right? Because we do want to have, well, we want to like our hero, right? And Roland, I don't know, I'm, I'm maybe 50-50. The, the percentages might not be quite that exact yet, but I'm, I'm not entirely sold on, on Roland as being an actual like, hero at this point. Though, King is doing a lot here in this section to connect Roland to Arthuriana. And we should say, too, I, I don't think that we mentioned this actually at all when we did the, the first chapter of The Gunslinger called The Gunslinger. We did three episodes on that before we've gotten here into the, the way station. That was like literally 50 episodes ago. So I don't remember if we mentioned this or not. But this whole series is inspired by King having read the epic poem Child Roland in uh, an undergraduate class. This is where you know the name Roland comes from. It's where the image of the Dark Tower itself comes from. And so... So this story is steeped in this type of Arthuriana or or medieval romance, maybe more broadly speaking, is what we should say. And so without actually saying anything at all, really, here in this section or so far in this book, we have the definite sense that the gunslinger is 
on a mission to mystically restore the prosperity and the morality of this world uh, of his childhood, uh, and maybe perhaps even to restore it to something, uh, a condition in which it existed before he himself was even born, right? That there's a uh, uh, a sense here that he's, he's on a mission to heal the realm uh, through his own act of mystical questing, although we get much more of an actual concrete villain here than we usually do. Yeah, that's something we're going to take up in our discussion episode, because it's not clear to me at this point that Roland is, strictly speaking, trying to heal the realm. But that that would be the classic Arthurian thing for him to do. The Yeah, the, the poem that really struck uh, King's imagination was Robert Browning's tale of Roland, Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came, which is a, a 19th century poem. And I we might have mentioned this, but I'll just read the first stanza here because it's, it's awesome. And you can see where some of these uh, ideas came from. And this is what Browning writes. My first thought was, he lied in every word. That hoary cripple with malicious eye ensconced to watch the working of his lie on mine and mouth scarce able to afford suppression of the glee that pursed and scored its edge at one more victim gained thereby. And uh, then you get references to the Dark Tower. It's a long poem, but uh, that opening stanza is really great. And I, I can see how King would have been inspired by it. Right. Yeah. I did some elision uh, uh, there and, and sort of skipping over the fact that, yeah, that poem is by Browning. It is part of the uh, mid-Victorian um, obsession with medievalism. We get a lot of this in Tennyson as well, who's really actually probably responsible for the way that we really think of King Arthur in our contemporary culture. A lot of the stories that we tell are from Mallory, who's really, really quite late medieval, maybe even early modern, uh, you know, depending on how you're wanting to look at his story. But I think it's Tennyson who really, really updates that material. And it's from that moment on that really we can trace back all of our, our movies and uh, you know, Marion Zimmer Bradley and basically all contemporary Arthuriana really comes from this, uh, this mid 19th century or mid Victorian literature. Tennyson, huge part of that. Browning, though, as well with this poem. Right. And, and, and you know, kind of continuing on with that Arthurian bit until until we move on here, this reference to the grail that we got in our in our last numbered section, uh, which we talked about in the last episode, is kind of what leads us to believe that the tower and the, the grail are like related in some way and that the king is the land and the land is the king and th that there's some kind of quest to to redeem the land. But uh, again, we're going to save some of this for our discussion. I want to return to the to the text here at this point to talk about the good man who we've already talked about how his image is really tightly commingled with the man in black. So the good man is somewhat to blame, I guess, for the world having moved on. And maybe the man in black is caught up in that as well. And I find this to be a really compelling premise for an ongoing series of stories. Uh, you know, like Roland kind of knows how the world has moved on. Maybe he's had a hand in it. He's not quite like a time Lord who participated in the war that ended Gallifrey or something like that, <laughs> but it's not, it's not too far off either. But we do learn then that the, the matricide business here is all on Roland's shoulders. He carries that himself. And 
you know, maybe he could find a way to blame Martin or the good man or the man in black or whomever. But this is where we get the really Freudian stuff, the Oedipal complex uh, in this section. You know, we see earlier in the text a mention about a love triangle, which is also classic Arthurian stuff. But Roland thinks it might also be a square because he's heard about the story of Oedipus, which is another strange reference that his world would yeah. have. Why do you have Oedipus and not My Fair Lady? Like, what kind of <laughs> world is this? You know, but, uh, you know, if the Oedipal complex is to be taken into account, now King is introducing a kind of like latent sexual jealousy that compelled Roland to kill his mother. This is just a really tightly constricted. This is just a really tightly constructed piece of writing, even if the content is uh, fairly icky and uh, unsavory. This love triangle, I, I didn't mention this at all in the, the recap, so we should be clear that we know at this point that the, the love triangle is Roland's dad, Roland's mom, and then also Martin, who is this this good man character and I guess you know the, the half-brother of the man in black. Martin, the good man, and, and, and Roland's mother are also having some kind of you know, romantic or sexual or both, I guess, relationship. And so that's the, the love triangle part here. And uh, yeah, uh, it's a, this is part of where I'm not really sold on Roland is that there's also this edible thing going on here that's, uh, I don't know, just uses geometry as kind of a metaphor <laughs> for that, which is uh, actually somehow some brilliant brilliant writing craft there on King's part. But, you know, even this whole chapter, the way station, right, does open up with this image of Roland, you know, remembering his mother singing to him at, at nap time. And he remembers what she looked like. And so I think that maybe it's a little less Oedipal than King is suggesting here at this part of the the story, and it's really you know the 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 love squareness of this is that Roland and his father perhaps have something in common, which is that uh, they both wish that their mother had loved them more than she did, or was present in their lives more than she was, or you know something like that. We'll just have to wait to reread Wizard and Glass to find out. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, we've uh, we're, we're veering into you know, just hardcore discussion episode territory <laughs> at this point, but we've actually got a third and final numbered section here. This is a short one. It's really more of an epilogue, but uh, yeah, let's get through that and then we'll get to go have that wrap up episode. So for this numbered section, this third final section, we're back in the present of the story. We've left the flashback behind. Roland and Jake have reached the base of the mountains. Above them, and also far off, uh, really a speck in the distance, is the man in black. They are going to catch up to him. It's not going to happen on this side of the mountains, but it's definitely going to happen on the other side of the mountains once they get up and over. And when Jake asks what is on that side of the mountains, Roland says he doesn't know. No one does, though maybe people did once. And here are the last few lines of The Way Station. When they made their camp for the evening, the boy spoke little, and the gunslinger wondered if the boy knew what he had already intuited. He thought of Cuthbert's face, hot, dismayed, excited. He thought of the crumbs. He thought of the birds. It ends this way, he thought. Again and again, it ends this way. There are quests and roads that lead ever onward, and all of them end in the same place, upon the killing ground. Except, perhaps, the road to the tower. The boy... The sacrifice, his face innocent and very young in the light of their tiny fire, had fallen asleep over his beans. The gunslinger covered him with the horse blanket and then curled up to sleep himself. 
Yeah, I'm really worried about what's going to happen next. <laughs> We've already <laughs> seen Roland walk willingly into a trap laid by the man in black. It's pretty clear that Roland is like almost a zealot in the way he follows the man in black, wherever the man in black is leading him, even though Roland is uh, the man in black's antagonist. And now the stakes are raised even more because of Jake. So yeah, I, I'm pretty worried about what it's going to mean to have a kid introduced into this story cycle, even though I know what happens. But still, it's, it's a great way to end this novella. Yeah, I mean, he's actually just called a sacrifice here in in this last <laughs> paragraph or this last page, which, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's great, works great just in reading this straight through as chapters in a novel. But you know, if you're reading this in the original context in which this is being serialized, wow, what a hook to get people to check back in, you know, literally next month, not just to, you know, keep reading, stay up late, you know, past your bedtime and keep reading or, you know, be excited to get back to it, you know, at bedtime tomorrow night, but no, to, to buy the magazine again next month, right? This is a, a fantastic hook for that. It really is. And if you know your Kierkegaard, you might be able to draw some uh, comparisons between Roland and Jake's relationship and the text Fear and Trembling. But that, that'll be something we talk about in the next episode. Hopefully you're all really super into that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, morals and ethics are going to be a big part of our conversation because they take up a big part of this text as well. But for now, that's going to do it. So once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. You should also head over to our page on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia because that is where you can join us and vote for what is going to be our next bonus series. That is happening this month. The ballot is live now and people are voting. So don't wait. Yeah, do it now if you're interested. Next time, we're going to be back with our final episode on The Waystation. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>